Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Look, I've had a 16-year-old and I've been 16, but 16, it's a difficult year. Many schools send 16s off to camp during this time and other schools line the boys up and make them do cadets. Ah, Should we question what schools do with teenagers of this age? Sarah Hopkins has written a book that will do just that. Welcome, Sarah Hopkins. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Well, this school, it is state of the art. It's in architecture and technology. Just give us a little bit of a description of this school. Well, as you say, it's it's a it's an architectural building. It's it's quite magnificent, and at, at its core, that it, he refers to it as a concrete TARDIS, and at its core is a courtyard which is filled with natural light with two pear trees in the middle. So pear trees, deciduous. So the story nearly takes a whole year and we see the leaves come off, the birds come, the whole thing about perhaps growth and renewal, life and death. Mm. The book is called The Subjects and has chapter headings with titles like History, Applied Mathematics and Biology. But these may not be the subjects being studied. Who are the students? So the students have each, they're a group of teenagers. They're referred to in the book as gifted delinquents. Mm. So each of them have come to the, the school or the facility uh, after um, being caught for a criminal offence and rather being sent to a juvenile detention facility, they're sent to the school. There's only 12 of them. And they sort of become two cohorts. There's a group of boys who always sit at the back of the class with our two sisters and Todd, Alex, Rachel and Daniel. And it's Daniel who's telling the story here. What brought him to the school? So Daniel is a 16-year-old who was dealing prescription drugs in high school. He had a very sophisticated operation, but he's also a boy with a housing commission background, a single mum who's been the victim of a string of violent relationships. So at at this place, his bedroom has an ensuite with a shower. And this is just a quote, and if you've ever know anything about 16-year-old boys, you'll understand this. It is a simple truth. Give a 16-year-old boy his own shower and you're giving him a 1.2 square metre pleasure zone. (laughs) (laughs) So one wonders, you know, who's paying for all of this? And here I'd like Sarah to read from page 25 because, you know, this is one thought Daniel has. It all fell into place, the fancy building, the wholesome food. That's where the money came from. God is big business, especially our saviour of the mansions out here in the middle of nowhere. I knew what this God looked like too. Mary and I saw him on morning TV, sitting on a white sofa surrounded by pot plants and talking about sacrifice and salvation. Oh, right. Well, the the principal, if you can call him a principal, is Dr. J. Uh, how do the boys interact? Oh, how do the children, I'm sorry, not teenagers, these, these, these kids that are being given a second chance, how do they interact with him? 
Well, Daniel is immediately very suspicious yeah. of Dr. J. I mean, he's a very enigmatic figure and Daniel can't work out what his role is. Um, but it's a critical relationship that unfolds in the novel from one of suspicion to one of a really deep understanding. And how has Dr. J set the rules for this school? He does it by way of contract. Mm. So, in fact, there are no rules in a sense. The Instead of being told how things are going to work, the, the students or the teenagers are given a blank piece of paper called a contract and they are the ones that determine what the conditions of their stay will be. And words from Dr J is, try something different and you'll give it a go. You know, he, that's what he wants them to do. Helen is their class teacher. Now, Helen's teaching methods are some that I've never quite realised. Can you describe a lesson with Helen? Yeah, I don't think anyone's <laughs> been <laughs> sat in a lesson with someone like Helen. So Helen is very alternative, alternate style teacher. Uh, she, she is, I guess you'd kind of call it like a narrative therapy. She she tells stories, but she tells not necessarily historical stories, but mythological mm-hmm. stories, uh, and brings the students into those stories in a way that makes them connect. Well, there's classroom time and there's also, I like this, compulsory video game playing time. But they all have to wear something. They all have to wear headsets. Uh, They don't question this because, you know, what teenager would question wearing headsets? Uh But each of the students have a specific subject teacher. The sisters have a musician. Todd has Magnolia the cook. Alex has a dance teacher. Daniel's subject teacher. So Daniel's subject teacher is a fellow called P.W. And the subject that he teaches him is a combination of mathematics and physics. And what it ultimately leads to is really a, a neuroscientific explanation, uh, investigation. He, also, he teaches Daniel the beauty of numbers. And, of course, then that goes on to... Uh, electric currents and the, then the way the brain works. Okay, now Sarah Hopkins, the subjects, the, the cover of the book has those words written in a brain and the very first page has an illust- an, a labelled illustration of just of different parts of the brain. In fact, we learn a lot about the brain and um, Daniel and his friends go and find top Top fun facts. Give us some of those fun facts. Yeah, so they start having going into the computer and doing some Googling and scrolling and clicking from gruesome images to fun facts. So a couple of those are the brain has more fat than any other organ in the body. Mm. One is the seven hours after his death, someone stole Einstein's brain. You have 70,000 thoughts a day. And lack of sleep leads to lack of growth. (laughs) Okay. So Daniel's story. Now, this story of, well, is is it a school, is being told from memory. There's two different time frames that he he gives us. So when's he remembering this school from? So he's remembering as a middle-aged man, he's a 47-year-old, looking back on his adolescence, his time at the school, which spans over seven months. 
uh, and you, the sense is you don't you don't know the purpose of him telling the story. That's something you don't find yeah. out until the very end of the book. But you get the sense that he's writing to correct something, to, to set the record straight. Uh, part of that process is that there is a, uh, a legal proceedings that go on seven years after the events at the school. So there's a, there's also a strong sense that these are part of an investigation. Uh, an inquiry. Yeah. Well, we get quotes from the transcripts of the inquiry through the book. Uh, the the twelve and or the people that go through this institution are not called inmates, not patients, not delinquents, but vulnerable children. Is that how they saw themselves? I don't think so. No, I don't think that they attach themselves to any of those. Labels, you know, they they see themselves as individuals, each hiding uh, secrets and trying to survive. Yeah, yes. Uh, deep friendships come through this whole thing. Now, give us just a feel about Alex. So Alex is—he's really quite an extraordinary young fellow. He's come from a, a quite a sad background. Um, again, an alternate, almost sort of hippie. Uh, background, uh, but he's suffered uh, tragedy, and he's there at the school, and he embarks on a project called the Human Misery Project, where he he wants to get his head around the size and scope of human suffering across the globe. Sometimes at night, because quite a few of these in these people cannot sleep. So they come out into the courtyard under the pear tree. They've got sleeping bags and they look up at the stars. And as Alex said, every star is a testament to human suffering. Oh, poor Alex. Yeah, poor Alex. But he's got tattoos of birds all over his body and he's got beautifully green, gentle eyes. So, And then there's Rachel. So Rachel is a, a, an Aboriginal girl who's full of anger and brilliance. Uh, she's really sort of like the activist voice in the book, if you like. Mm. Uh, you know, she getting to the, to the, to the root of her problems um, and her story becomes Daniel's goal. Well, as he says, um, this is also quoting from the book, the mystery of her, the lure of the infinite and unknown, Love is a desire to infiltrate. Oh, look. So there's these two and there's Todd. Well, we know Todd possibly is incredibly overweight. This is why he's doing cooking courses. And he's a bit of a, oh, he doesn't quite fit in with, with, with the friendship grouping. So we learn about these, these adolescents, problem people. Sarah Hopkins, how can you get in the mind of these people? Well, you know, it, this is the first book that I wrote, I've written in the first person. And mm. uh, so it was a great and exciting challenge for me to do that. And when I realised Daniel was my, was my first person, it was my voice, uh, you know, you really have to inhabit a character uh, so much when you, when you are writing from the first person. And I... You know, I gave myself time to do that. I've I've represented um, through my work uh, in the courts a lot of uh, adolescent boys, particularly. Uh, so, 
I, I had a fairly um, rich place to mine sort of thoughts around what who Daniel was, what he wanted, what he was scared about. Fear is a big thing in this book. Yeah. You know, it, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to just read that bit about what the colours... No, I'm not because I've just lost my page. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's how Daniel... What happens with him when he goes berserk? He sees the colours and he and he has that absolute anger. But, you know, you don't know whether it's from the anger or the fear. Yeah. And he's destructive, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's... I mean, one of the things I was really interested to explore is a young person who you have great empathy with but, but one that also has a, a very dangerous capacity for violence. And it's there... And then it's the whole thing about Rachel. We, she's, she's a sleepwalker. She seems to go into catonic states and she will not tell anyone why. And, you know, Daniel certainly, he wants, he wants to know. He certainly wants to know. He makes it his task his in life. His task. Yes. And Alex, you know, they sort of so want to help Alex too. Everybody wants to help Alex. Well, one chapter in the book is called Macro Macro. Economics, and as you mentioned, Daniel had a microeconomic business, doing um, with drugs and selling them, and just how he refused to take them himself, and how he—I thought this was interesting—how he then was able to sell them to kids who really needed uppers or you know kids in year twelve, and he was so honest with his business, wasn't he? He didn't—he never uh, took credit. <laughs> And I couldn't believe how much money he made. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a lucrative business that he that he that he starts up and runs. Oh yes, um, fiction. Now, at its believable best, in is in this book, and uh, you know you've, your background, although a criminal lawyer. It's it's just phenomenal, just what you've reached into. Because what what by the by the finish of this book. I'm questioning so many of the facts that I know, so many about the facts about criminal justice, about um, pharmaceutical companies, you name it, research and how it's done. And I was, when Daniel found out what the school was all about, I thought, oh, my goodness, (laughs) very clever. Thank you. (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. (laughs) Well, I was really interested to explore uh, you know those questions, and, and I want to raise those questions. I ask them myself all those times. You know, how are our systems, not just our criminal justice system, but our health system and our education system? How are they serving uh, young children and young people? Well, as I said, it's fiction, but boy, God, it's a good fact. So I've been speaking with Sarah Hopkins about her book, The Subjects, and it's published by Text. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jim. Well, we've got two former teachers here that know all about schools. My guest and myself have been in the education business, but Jan, we're often haunted by memories or dreams, but Michael Pryor reveals the full extent of phasmaturgy in his novel Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town. So, Michael, welcome back to 3CR. Uh, Good to be here, David. Now, there are ghosts everywhere, it seems, but let's start with the word phasmaturgy. I don't think I've 
come across it before. You're unlikely to come across I did make that one up. But it works. Yeah. It, it is one of those classic compendium words that uh, the turgy suffix means magic making and phasma is, is uh, working with spirits. Ghost. And so, so put it together, it's ghost magic. And basically, when's it going to appear in the Oxford? <laughs> well, look, I'm just hoping for the uh, major miniseries on Netflix and it will soon be picked up. But... You're very wicked yourself, because they're sort of uh, verbal haunting in this book as well, the ideas that haunt your writing. You play with language. Incredulous, gobsmacking, flabbergastedness. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I, I can't help but be playful. I've, I've, I've started a number of deadly serious novels, philosophical, uh, meaningful, trenchant uh, social criticism, but the jokes start coming, coming in. Through. You've got quotes from authors. This is a little game between the characters whom we'll talk about in a minute. You've got bananas in pyjamas. Now, come on, what's going on here? Uh, look, pop culture references, uh, one of the staples of uh, Graveyard Shift in Ghost Town and the predecessor, Gap Year in Ghost Town. It, it's it's a calling out because the, the young characters live in a pop culture world and they always reference it. It's just natural. But it's, it's not... We're not quoting bananas in pyjamas. We're quoting the ly- as in the the rhythm, the meter, the sort of echo, mm, very of much, it, so. which, which fits. So we're placing those pop culture references in a new sort of well, within the story. That is the playfulness again. Yeah, I mean, young people do it all the time. This is how memes work. Of course, that you take a uh, pop culture. Uh, uh, still or a, a line and you twist it slightly and give it a new context. It's but, the way but it works. It's something they identify with. Yeah. Uh, also then, just to, out of nowhere, um, the Burke and Will's grand piano. <laughs> yep. yep, true facts. <laughs> you put in true facts, this sort of ridiculousness that uh, you're playing with. But look, let's move on because this book is about ghosts mm. and I didn't know there was such diversity. Here we go. Lingerers, moaners, weepers, ragers, mopers, lurkers, trespassers. Oh, yeah. One of the first things I did when uh, writing the first uh, volume of the series was sit down and start to categorise ghosts because it's just one of the ways my mind works, that it's nice to be able to put things, uh, detail the separate sorts of ghosts. They're not just ghosts as a lumpy whole. There are different varieties and they've got names. But here's the go. You've got a culture where we talk about ghosts. There are ghost stories, programs on ghosts, Mm. all of this sort of thing. How, as a writer then, do you... Uh, maintain that originality. Yeah, and this was the test, of course, that uh, I wanted to write a ghostly story, but how to give it a new twist, do something new. And categorising them like that was one of the ways of giving it a new cast. And sort of in, in a strange way, sort of modernising it, the modern sense of uh, the world as as taxonomy, of being able to put things in little jars, little baskets, is a way of making things a little bit more manageable, even well, ghosts. And and you even have ghosts in jars in this as well. Yes, that's true. They break the bottle and out. I yes. forget what ones they were. The go- the they were the rogues in a bottle. The rogues, that's right. So you just be careful when somebody throws a glass at you. Now, I actually hadn't caught up with the first book in the series, which was Gap Year in Ghost Town, but the basic premise is that Anton Murin has a family history in ghost hunting, and he's teamed up with Rani from the Company of the Righteous. But there's the Murin method of disposing of 
ghosts, which has consequences, by the way. Indeed. It, uh, and this is, again, one of the ways to try to give it a new cast on ghosts and ghost hunting. I mean, in book one, there is a, a, a call out at the very beginning to, uh, to Ghostbusters that... Basically, Anton is sick and tired of people coming up and asking who you're going to call. He, he, he yeah. wants to distance himself from the Ghostbusters. And partly it's because of the way, why are they hunting ghosts? They are hunting ghosts, the Marin family operation that goes back generations. They're hunting ghosts to release them from this earthly realm. The ghosts are trapped here and Marins want to help them go on to elsewhere, to wherever Part uh, past this earthly uh, realm, and they do it in a very gentle, very sensitive, very meaningful way. Because the classic way of releasing ghosts uh, from this earthly realm was to hunt them down and chop them up, which is the way Rani and the uh, company of the uh, righteous. That's the way they approach it. That's the traditional way. So Anton and his family, uh, they're iconoclasts and they're sort of outcasts in the ghost hunting community because they have this really strange way of dealing with ghosts. Are you allowed to detail it or should the reader find that out for themselves? They can find it out. It, it, it's, it is just a very personal way of sending ghosts. But there are consequences yes, to indeed. doing it that way. Yes, indeed. Are you able to tell us that or not? Yeah, once, uh, once the Marin family operatives send a ghost elsewhere, they're, they're left with the memories that the ghosts have mm. of the life that spawned them. And interesting, you know, living or accommodating other people's feelings, interests, memories, etc. can be quite mm. a challenge. But now you're dovetailing this supernatural uh, world with the real world. Um, you've got notions of, you know, one's got to maintain a work-health-life balance, um, for one thing. You've got the locations, which are intrinsically Melbourne, Elizabeth Street, Victoria, Latrobe, you've got birthday parties. What's the importance of all of this? It's in lots of ways. This is it's a contemporary novel. It just happened to be some ghosts hanging around at the edges, uh, and and this for me is quite a departure. I've written many science fiction and fantasy books set in far off uh, places, uh, and this is the first one for a long time. This is this is my thirty ninth novel, David. This is the first one for a long time that I've set in a real uh, location. And it had delightful consequences that uh, instead of trying to work out how far is it from this imaginary city A to an imaginary city B, I thought Thornbury to St Kilda, yeah, well, yeah, I know that. I, I, oh. you, you can walk down Latrobe yes. Street, work out, and because the buildings are there and you've, you've identified those. There's lots of call-outs to landmarks around Melbourne City, grounding it particularly. And th this is one of my writer theories, that uh, if... A lot of the narrative is grounded in the everyday and familiar. It makes the outre and the outlandish more outlandish by contrast. But also be or not believable necessarily, but you can place it within a context. We have this reality bridge. The mm. reality is there and then you, once you accept that, then the rest of it 
is uh, second There's nature. There's another reality yeah. you bring in, oh. a very contemporary reality, yes. and I'm just going to read, hmm. uh, because you've got two characters, Beck and Rani. Beck has been my best friend ever since ever, and she's in that rare category of friends who are so important and meaningful that when good things happen to her, I don't get all envious and gnash my teeth. When good stuff happens to her, it makes me happy. When she go, got into uni and got that scholarship, I celebrated with her big time. She's special like that. And Rani, since she bowled into my life and blew everything up in a good way, she saved my neck more than a couple of times. As a result, my feelings towards her are very positive, especially considering what she's taught me about approaching ghost sites and dealing with some of the more belligerent spooks we run into. More than that, I admire her bravery and the way she stood up to the crusties of the Company of the Righteous. So having the two of them making each other happy is a pretty good deal to my way of thinking. Not that they need my approval... But friends are precious, and when friends are happy, that's fine. That's a fine, fine thing. Now you're touching very delicately here on a very contemporary topic. Yep, and and thanks for reading that because that, that's Anton. That's Anton's voice. It's very much a voice novel. He's talking to the reader, and so the cadence and rhythm is essential in capturing his character. But he's talking about uh, two of his friends forming a relationship. And I have very deliberately, it's not foregrounded. It's just background. It's just there as an accepted part of the way these young people are managing their lives. I'm not making a big deal about it. Just It just is, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, But it's still a contemporary topic that has to be dealt with by adolescents and such like, their, their perspective on it. Yeah. But let's get on to the story proper in the short time we have, because... You've posed a challenge for me because there are a lot of twists and turns here, mm. some of which we can't actually give away. We have the Ragged Sisters. Mm-hmm. They're the villains. The villains. We have the concept of elsewhere. So where do the ghosts go once they go? Well, they go elsewhere with a capital E. But they can be brought back. <gasps> yeah, this is one of the things that they find out. And... and the whole world of ghosts and ghost hunting is uncertain. At various times, Anton says, well, some people think this about ghosts. Other people think something else. Nobody really knows, but there are lots of theories. But there's a problem here because this is central to the uh, sort of plot line. Make no mistake, she finished. This entity is behind the ghost eruption here. It's harvesting ghosts in elsewhere before they can go on and sending them back to disrupt life here. Hmm. So it's it's more than just... Ghostly haunting. It's ghostly, ghostly haunting. Yeah, it's double ghost territory. And, of course, don't forget, that's what someone says. Uh, How reliable is her judgment of this particular state of affairs? And, of course, the twisty shiftiness is part of the fun. So we've got a, a, well, an epidemic of ghosts, so to speak. Where are they coming from? What's their motivation? They're not like ordinary ghosts that they've encountered. Mm. And so it's it's ramping it up. But you've got Aunt Tanya Aunt in Tanya. here as well. How much can you tell us here? <sighs> yep. Uh, Anton's Aunt Tanya was a ghost hunter. And some time ago when Anton was younger, she disappeared during the middle of some sort of awkward ghost magic experiment. Uh, and in Graveyard Shift, in ghost, she reappears. So but where has she been? What's going on? What has she experienced? And is she the same person she was before she left? Anton has suspicions. And her contribution to the plot line is very important. So the purpose of the Ragged Sisters and what they're doing 
Aunt Tanya's involvement in having been elsewhere, because the Ragged Sisters are dealing with things in elsewhere, and the implications for what's happening here, mm. so to speak. Yep. So it's the, the intrigue there, basically. Yeah, that's that's the narrative mechanism uh, that drives the novel. Uh, when I'm writing a novel like this, it's the character mechanism that drives the novel, but also there, there's the plot, mm. the, the plot mechanisms and who do we believe, what's going on, and I want to read to find out how it's going to turn out. And our listener and our and your readers are going to actually have to read the book because we can't give that away. That That's the intriguing part. But just before we finish, I've got to read this because this is so much fun because we have tourist ghost hunters. I stared at them. There are a couple of alternatives here, but I'm really, really hoping that you're not trespassers. They both took a couple of steps in our direction. Trespassers? Us? She growled. We're ghost hunters. His hands had curled into fists. You think we look like trespassers? Ronnie held up both hands. Easy there. Sorry, we've had some recent trespass, trespasser encounters, so we're a little on edge. Trespassers here? He drew his knife, eyes flicking from side to side. Brilliant! Point us at them! She said, we'll slap my around something fierce. I rubbed my chin. You're not from around here, are you? What makes you think that? He asked. The accent, it's a giveaway. They looked at each other. You don't have an accent, she said to him. Neither do you, he said to her. He jabbed a finger at me. You do, very Aussie, he pointed at Rani. And you'd be English, very English. He stretched out very so long, I thought it was going to break, snap back and hit him in the mouth. Look, I said, things have been a bit dodgy here lately, so I hope you don't mind me asking what the heck you're doing here. That's a working holiday, the woman said defensively, and we're not going to stop dispatching ghosts just because we're in a foreign country. Aye, the guy shook his head, besides your muckle ghosts around here and radges, all of them. Yeah, you are playing around. Oh, thank you, Dave. You did that really well. <laughs> of course I'm playing before I uh, uh, launched into writing the first draft of this, I'd spent a month in Edinburgh, just on a working holiday, <laughs> and oh, I love the Scots and I love their their oral culture, the way they talk, the way they approach things, and I was determined though that I wanted to make sure they they weren't cliches, but they were distinctive. And well, yeah. definitely distinct. They add colour to this whole storyline. Yeah. So we have ghosts. We have graveyard shift in Ghost Town by Michael Pryor, set in Melbourne. So you'll identify with the places. You'll identify with the characters, Anton and Rani. It's an Alan and Unwin release. So Michael, thank you for coming in again. Well, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. And I was chatting with Sarah Hopkins about her book, The Subjects. And I've got to say, there's a lot of fiction and based on fact and uh, not many laughs. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs)